What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the episode of Just Segway. Today I'm joined by Bob Sosi, who is the play-by-play -play announcer and 98.5 The Sports Hub for the New England Patriots, has called many Super Bowls that the Patriots have won. Bob, thanks for being on the show. Hey, George, thanks for having me. I, I love the name of the podcast. It's a very smooth yeah. transition there. Appreciate it. So how's everything been for you? The season just ended. It's the off-season. Very different type of off-season that we're used to especially in my lifetime, I and mean, I don't think it's ever been like this. I'm 26 years old. We've been spoiled with a good season pretty much every year. Gerard Mayo is the coach now. It's a new era. The draft is in about three months uh, coming up. How are you feeling? Yeah, George, it's, you know, every offseason for the Patriots is full of intrigue and holds a lot of interest. And especially when you go back to Prior to 2019, the Patriots were coming off the 2018 season. They had won the Super Bowl championship. There was so much conversation and speculation about the future of Tom Brady. And, of course, he plays with the Patriots that year. But then we go into the spring of 2020 after the Patriots lost in the wild card round to the Tennessee Titans, wondering what's going to happen with Tom. And of course, the pandemic arrives, they were locked down, he signs with the Buccaneers, and that begins this process where Cam Newton eventually comes in as the Patriots quarterback. And they have the reset in 2020, playing before an empty Gillette Stadium. And then you go through the following offseason and they splurge in free agency and they draft a quarterback in the first round. And they go through a 10-win season, get to the playoffs. They get hammered by Buffalo, but nonetheless, there's promise there. And then prior to last season, 2022, of course, there's all the conversation that never, never uh, abated surrounding the appointment of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge to run the offense after Josh McDaniels departed for Las Vegas and brought a lot of the staff with him when he became head coach of the Raiders. And so that filled the offseason period for the Patriots. And then, of course, the year went as it did, 8-9, and nine, a dysfunctional offense for the most part, and brought us to this last offseason, the hiring of Bill O'Brien, the announcement that the Patriots were going to negotiate a deal to keep Gerard Mayo in-house, giving us, I think, stronger signs of what some suspected, that he was the likely heir apparent to Bill Belichick whenever that time came uh, for Bill to either retire or for Robert Kraft to, to make a decision regarding Bill Belichick. And as it turns out, of course, they announced this mutual parting of ways a couple of weeks ago. So this offseason is not altogether unlike those past offseasons because there's always been so much activity. And the NFL is like that any, anymore. It used to be uh, in, during the, the months between the Super Bowl and the draft, you know, there, there might be some headlines and free agency, but for a long period of time, really not much happened in the NFL besides coaching changes. Well, the, the the cycle is nonstop. It's 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And here we are today. But uh, to answer your, your question specifically about the coaching change and what's going on the last couple of weeks, uh, it, it's been, you know, we really, I think, uh, as hectic, just trying to keep up with the names that are out there, who's being brought in for interviews, the speculation regarding the direction the Patriots are going in, the reaction uh, to what has been said or what hasn't been said, what's been done, what hasn't been done. Uh, so it's been a very interesting and in a lot of ways a busy time, even though I really haven't been covering it day to day and, and certainly not broadcasting it, but I'm at least trying to stay on top of it. Yeah, you know, it's definitely exciting just in terms of what can happen just because this is a new situation. You can't pick last in the first round every year. 
I know we were, you know, creeping up in the teens and things like that, but as Kraft has uh, emphasized just in terms of his success, it's just we've never had a draft pick this low in the first round. So it's definitely going to be a different type of feeling and excitement come draft day. Uh, so I was just wondering, what were your expectations coming into the season? I know it was a tough year last year with Patricia and Judge and what occurred, but, you know, I was really uh, kind of nervous and not knowing if they could make the playoffs just because of that tough schedule. To me, it was kind of a coin flip just, you know, because of the schedule and, you know, the changes with the coaching staff. I was just wondering what you were expecting going into this season. You know, going going into 2023, I think it was apparent to everyone who was paying any attention, whether it was really close attention or just casually following the news regarding the Patriots, that they had some areas of concern, the offensive line, wide receiver, still head-scratching today that the Patriots did not make an effort really to re-sign Jacoby Myers and opted instead to go out and get Juju Smith-Schuster. But the feeling I had overall, despite all these questions regarding their offense and the personnel, was a positive one because I thought Bill O'Brien would come in, maybe allow Mac Jones to pick up where he left off when Josh McDaniels was his coordinator in a similar offense going back to the end of the 2021 season. And I think during the early days of training camp and really for much of the preseason, despite maybe what we saw on the field during preseason games, there was cautious optimism because it seemed like Mac was taking to the offense and O'Brien had good things to say about the quarterback and they seemed to be developing trust and have a good relationship overall. The season begins, they lose a tight one to the Eagles. There's still some of those markings of past seasons. But nonetheless, I mean, they had the opportunity to win against the defending NFC champion. Turnovers, though, ultimately cost them in that game. And then the same thing with Miami the next week in week two. Another team you figure is playoff bound for the second straight year under Mike McDaniel. So I'm thinking after two games, okay, you know, there are – either really positive signs or really concerning signs or or both. And, and it really turned out to be more of the latter than the former. Uh, the turnovers continued. In fact, they multiplied uh, the areas that we knew were thin. And, and really, even when you looked at the front line people, because they never had the offensive line set through training camp and at the start of the season. Uh, they weren't just thin in terms of depth behind the starters. They were thin with the guys that were running out there uh, game to game, week to week. Uh, so I will say this. I, I thought that there was a possibility that the team would really struggle in, in certain areas. I just never envisioned anything like what they went through to go n not only 4-13, and 13, but to lose home games the way they did, to be shut out by really a mediocre New Orleans team. To win one home game during the course of the season, to, to hold teams to 10 or fewer points, but yet lose games more than once, more than twice in, in, in those types of situations. Uh, so, again, I think that you go back to the preseason and you can say, you know what, there were a lot of signs that were there that this team really could have a difficult year and, and I should have paid closer attention to them. I just never thought uh, the team would fall to the level it did to the depths of four and thirteen. Yeah, and I don't think anyone did uh, envision that. And like you said, a tough schedule at the beginning, but yeah. no one thought it would be like that. And just you know, in terms of how it was unfolding. So, like you said, you mentioned how 
what happened against Philadelphia and Miami, you know, two really great teams, one was the best offense of the year and one was the defending NFC champions. When Dallas happened, a lot of people thought, oh, this was just a one-off, and then New Orleans happened. You know, I remember coming back from Canada with my family and just checking the score of that New Orleans game, and it just escalated so quickly, and before you knew it, the game was pretty much over. At that point, in terms of just team struggles, did you think there were a lot of internal things going on as well? I mean, it just seemed like the, the whole team didn't really show up those couple of days. I thought, you know, it's funny too, George, and, and I'm glad you kind of mentioned that because late in the year, there was a lot of conversation about how hard the Patriots were playing, and there's no doubt about that. But there was a period of time, particularly Dallas, New Orleans. Now, again, the effort at the start of games was there. Then you you find yourselves giving up a touchdown on offense you know, because of a pick six in the case of the Cowboys, and again, versus New Orleans, and, and those things really have uh, residual effects beyond just that immediate play and the points on the board. Uh, I think they really impact the psyche of the quarterback, the psyche of the offense, the confidence of the defense in the offense, et cetera. Uh, but I thought in, in that early period of time, particularly those two games, you know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say necessarily that the effort wasn't there, but I, I think that there was a lack of Know, kind of situational awareness, a, a lack of the attention to detail, and and uh, maybe the, the the focus to go along with the physical performance that we did see at various points, particularly on the defensive side throughout the season, but at various points during the course of the year, like the Buffalo game at home uh, being the best example. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, a lot of times when people talk about how hard the Patriots played at the end of the season, and again, I'm not really, I don't mean to question their effort. I think you go back to those games that you referenced, Dallas, New Orleans in particular, uh, the Washington game, and some of the big plays they gave up on third and really impossible situations. For Sam Howe, who we, we learned thereafter, uh, really doesn't hold a lot of promise for the future of the Washington commanders at the quarterback position, it seems. Uh, so I, I, I look at games like that and I think, you know what, that wasn't the same team, the same effort uh, or, or focus, uh, the, the same level of concentration on what they had to do play to play as the, the early part of the season. Yeah, you make such a good point. And, you know, we saw that like a different team in terms of just when they went into Pittsburgh or even Denver, they put up a great fight and, you know, they won those games. Now, I know for someone like you, I'm sure where you go a lot of places, all the Patriots fans want to talk sports when they meet you. I'm sure Zoe gets that treatment a lot all the time and everyone who works for the Patriots. You know, when after those two, you know, horrific losses, I'm sure a lot of fans were talking about the draft pick, the draft pick. And it was it was all about on the, on the talk radio 98.5 as well and everywhere you went. I was just wondering what were your thoughts on that because – you know, in my opinion, I agreed with a lot with Michael Felger said about the, the tanking, how you don't want to build a losing culture or, you know, that quarterback, unless he's Peyton Manning, Luck, uh, you know, Trevor Lawrence or Joe Burrow waiting at number one, you know, you're throwing darts at a dartboard to try and pick that guy, you know, pick two through ten. And you don't know how it's going to work out. We saw Trey Lance holding Dak Prescott's clipboard about a month ago on the sideline, and he was the third pick about three years ago in Mac Jones' draft class. I was just wondering, when all that was in the air and all that talk about it, what were your thoughts going into it? Absolutely, Church. I totally agree with you, and I, and I agree with Mike on, on that point as well, which is rare. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think that it goes beyond just the losing 
mentality, the losing culture. I think that, you know, learning how to win is is really an exercise in sports, and we take it for granted, uh, particularly around here because the teams have been so successful. But the Patriots have brought in a lot of players from outside the organization, and they had, they had some young players that, you know, they were relying on increasingly as the season went along. Uh, and, you know, there's that part of it. I think the, you want those players to be locked in and to give you an effort that hopefully produces positive results to build on. But then beyond that, I, I look at it simply from this standpoint. I go into that locker room during the week or after games, and, you know, you, you don't have to really look too closely or, you know, even look around the whole locker room. It doesn't take long before you see the signs of what those players have gone through out on the field, put their bodies through, uh, out on the field to play that game. It's such a brutally violent game in a lot of respects and a dangerous game as we know increasingly based on the science, what we learn about you know the ramifications of head injury specifically. But you see a guy go down, even in the preseason, a guy like Trey Nixon, for example, or Isaiah Bolden in that Green Bay game. These two guys whose dreams are on the line and, the, and, and they end on a single play, single misstep or a hit. And I think about that, and, and, and for me to, to go to those games and to travel with that team as the team's broadcaster and say to myself, let alone to think publicly out loud on the air, they, I, they need to lose the game. It's, it's in the best interest of these guys to go out and lose. I, I can't do that. I just can't bring myself to that point. So I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think Michael's right when you talk about you don't want a losing mentality. And, and the other part of it is, and, and you hit on it, there's no guarantee. Now, you could end up with number two, and you wind up with Sam Darnold or Zach Wilson or Mitchell Trubisky. I mean, people forget, you know, Patrick Mahomes was not a no-brainer. Uh, he was picked behind <laughs> Trubisky. Yep. And I don't remember anybody saying when the draft was coming up, uh, when he was coming out of Texas Tech, that guy – He's going to be the net. He's going to be the all-time great. He's going to challenge Tom Brady and Tom Brady's record someday. I went to the combine that year and I saw him at the podium and I thought, "Wow, he looks like a 13-year-old kid." Same thing with Josh Allen. Look, look at this—the start of his career and all the criticism about him coming out of Wyoming for a variety of reasons, especially the inaccuracy uh, and and what he went through his first couple of years in the NFL. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of physical tools that were there, but there were there were no guarantees that those two guys were going to become the kind of quarterbacks they did. So my, my, my thought is, you know, uh, from a personal standpoint, I can't think those guys need to go out there and lose because of what they're putting themselves through, what they're laying on the line week after week. But then beyond that, I think that history shows us, you know, tanking, you don't always get Andrew Luck. And, you know, sometimes you wind up with that first pick. And you get Tim Couch, uh, like the Browns did years ago. So those are my thoughts. Or Ryan Leaf. Yeah, an even greater example of the draft bus. I mean, in my lifetime, the, the one that sticks out the most is probably either Matt Leinart or uh, Jamarcus Russell. I'm just too yeah, happy, absolutely, really happy. yeah, yeah. And it's challenging because you know those guys who, like you said, you know Burrow didn't have a whole lot of hype because he was you know, a transfer, but, you know, the guys like Trevor Lawrence and Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning, the guys who get that hype when they're in high school, I mean, those really happen once every 10 years or so. It's, it's So you make a good point. People weren't really hyping up Mahomes. So, you know, how challenging was it for you just in terms of 
watching the team and, you know, preparation and stuff where there was like a three or four week stretch where you didn't really know who was starting a quarterback. And Bill was really, you know, really took it to a new level, just how, you know, stubborn he was at the podium and saying, I told everyone to be ready to play, you know, top to bottom. And uh, that is a good coaching mentality, but just in terms of trying to figure out who the quarterback's going to be, it's a little frustrating, but you know, what was that stretch for you like as uh, the broadcaster just, uh, not really knowing who's going to play quarterback, and uh, it didn't really take up until that San Diego game where we did know. Well, George, I'm going to give you a Bill Belichick-like answer. You have to prepare for everybody to play, and, and, and especially on radio, too. And now, it's, it's a little different when you're talking about television, if, if not a lot different on television, particularly at the network level, where they want to have packages prepared for player A or player B. Maybe they're going to build the narrative in, in the open, in the, in the scene setter, in the tease around quarterback A as opposed to quarterback B. And, and so they want to have a certainty or at least close to 100% certainty on who's going to be the guy. Where do we, you know, where do we have to have our lenses pointed when the game begins? Who are we going to be following on the sideline? What are we going to be watching for? You know, what's the first, you know, we're going to be extra uh, clued in to the potential change early, what, whatever the case may be. But I think on radio, you know, you prepare for everybody. You have your your depth chart, particularly when it's your team that you're calling games for on a regular basis. Uh, the numbers change from week to week, and some of the notes do in their biographies for me. But overall, the general knowledge of those players doesn't vary. Uh, there, there's very little of of what I have on my spotting board, and I have a lot of information on the spotting board that I keep in front of me about the Patriots that so actually gets used in a game because there's so much. That's recalled off the top of your head, and Zoe's knowledge of the team, and in you know the the amount of information or analysis that he gives between plays, it makes it a little easier when you're talking about the uncertainty regarding who's going to be the Patriots quarterback today. Um, but on television, I know it's a bit of a different story, particularly you know from the network broadcast point of view. But again, you have to prepare for everybody, and and and, and that's the reality of of calling play by play. Because if you don't do your homework on the second, third string running back or the third or fourth wide receiver, inevitably, that guy's going to find himself on the field. And I'll give you an example in Super Bowl 49. I really didn't prepare for Chris Matthews when he was the receiver for the Seattle Seahawks. He never caught a pass. And this is a guy that, you know, was, I mean, you talk about obscure players. And Chris Matthews for the for the Seahawks didn't even enter my thought process going into that game. And he's on the board, though, and he gets in the game. And at least I had some information there regarding Matthews. And, he, and he's he's in line to be the MVP of the, of the Super Bowl, uh, you know, midway through the fourth quarter, perhaps, because the Seahawks got a 10 point lead. And this guy had the half of his lifetime, you know, in the first half to help help them get there. So. I mean, he's the reason why Malcolm Butler was in the game for the Patriots because Logan Ryan and Kyle Arrington couldn't cover it. Yeah, it is. It is crazy how it all worked out in that game. And, um, you know, in, pre in preparation for these games is definitely something that, uh, you know, takes a lot of work. And like, it's, it is crazy looking back on it, how, you know, you got to be ready for any player to play well. So they win a couple games and towards the end of the season, they beat uh, Denver and Pittsburgh you think there's any sort of positive momentum going into next season just off of those games and, and wins? You know, we did see the team win in that group, but, you know, also we saw the defense play well. You know, I know we saw that crazy stat that they've given up 
less than 10 points in three straight games and they lost all of them, which is just you know, unfathomable of how that could happen. But uh, what are the positives just going into next season? You know, if most of these guys do stick around on the defense. Well, I wouldn't say momentum. I think that the positives you take away are the development of some players on defense and the knowledge, the hope that some of the guys they lost and they lost significant pieces will be back next year. But look, they're they're in a position right now where they could change dramatically, even on that side of the ball. I mean, so much of the focus right now is on the offense. But you look at the defense and the number of players who just finished their first contract. Kyle Duggar, Anthony Jennings, Josh Uche. There are other players on that defense who may or may not be coming back. Uh, for the Pats. I'd be surprised if Jalen Mills was a Patriot in 2024. Uh, so, you know, you look at look at the team as a whole, and, and, and players say this every year, coaches say this every year, uh, even when the coaches remain the same. You know, while, you know, every team, you don't come back with the same team. It's going to change dramatically. That's the National Football League. Well, now the Patriots are changing significantly in the coaching staff. And I, I think it's hard to to say they're going to be able to sustain momentum. You don't know. The other thing about it, the NFL, and we've touched on it a bit, is the the attrition. It's, momentum is difficult to maintain week to week in the league because of attrition and injuries, uh, let alone from one season to the next. Just ask like the New York Jets had a lot of momentum going into the regular season opener last year against the Bills, and four plays in, even though they won the game, their season really – uh, was over in a lot of respects because of the injury to Aaron Rodgers. Uh, but I, I think the biggest thing for me is just the development of some players. You know, they found out a little bit about, let's let's give you an example, an Alex Austin. You know, this young defensive back they picked up as a rookie, drafted by the Bills, was on the Texans practice squad. Patriots get him. Bit of a, you know, a complete unknown, really, for fans and media here. I remember I think Felger was saying, you know, who's this Austin guy? I never heard of the guy. And he wanted to play. He wanted to start in a couple of games late in the season, and he had an interception of Josh Allen in Buffalo, in fact. And he actually, I thought, held his own. And now you think, okay, this could develop pretty well by the end of the season for them. Maybe he's not a starting quarterback next year, but that's going to bump this guy or that guy off the roster. Will J.C. Jackson be back? I doubt it. Will, like I said, Jalen Mills be back? I'd be surprised. Uh, so I, I think about somebody like that and saying, okay, you know, they might have found a little depth piece at the cornerback position and Alex Austin. And and there are other examples like that we can talk to. I think the, I think the development of, of Jennings uh, this year, the kind of season that he had, I think the play of some others on defense. I think, I think the momentum that Christian Barmore built up around midseason and then really sustained through the second half of the year has positioned him – right now to, to 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 go to the Patriots and with his agent now after three seasons and say, let's talk. And, and I hope the Patriots do it because he's he's a guy that uh, could really be a foundational piece for their defense up front. Yeah, got to get him extended. I mean, what a season he's had. I mean, definitely a steal. I mean, he definitely fell a bit more than he should have in the draft. I don't know what the reasons were, but um, what a player he's become. So, you know, Bill's last game, it's definitely – uh, as big as when we saw Tom Brady play his last game at Gillette Stadium, I was just wondering, just in terms of all your years of working with the Patriots, if there's just a particular story that stuck out to you about Bill Belichick, maybe time you've interacted with them that really uh, took you back. Yeah, I, you know, I think obviously the, the fans are very well aware of Bill's persona in press conferences, particularly after losses or when you know there are times where the Patriots are struggling or there's a news 
development uh, that he wants to tamp down, uh, whether it's a controversy or a, a player situation, a contract situation with a player or a player performance situation, like in the quarterback's case this year. I think for me, you know, I, I had interaction with Bill outside of the press conference settings at times, but not a whole lot over the course of my my career because I had a background at the Naval Academy. It didn't necessarily help me initially. In fact, it didn't help me at all initially. But I think as time went along, there were there were conversations occasionally, very short, where we might have been sitting down to do an interview if I was filling in for Zoe, for example, on All Access or with the Bellustrator. Or if, you know, I, I did the pregame interview or if I saw him, uh, you know, at the baggage claim coming back from the combine in Indianapolis, as I did one year, where there might have been a little small talk. Uh, but that was really the extent of our communication outside of those press conferences. But I think the things that resonate with me uh, that probably a lot of people don't recognize are the ways that Bill taught and coached on the practice field and watching him in training camp, especially early on in my tenure, I was always fascinated by the fact that this guy was not in a tower overlooking the practice fields. He was down there with his hands on players, like delivering coaching points. And it wasn't just to the star players. It was to the last guys on the roster in training camp, you know, undrafted free agents. He was with the punt protection unit on, you know, one field during one period and the very next period he was over on the other side of the other field you know, working with some defensive back about his hand placement jamming a receiver at the line of scrimmage and those are the you know those are the moments that for me really captured the essence of bill i know there's a lot made about you know the hood and uh the lord seth and darth vader you know mad genius diabolical coach schemer uh, you know, uh, caricatures that are out there in the media and often, you know, played up again, uh, you know, television broadcast. But for me, it was really just, you know, watching Bill as a coach and a teacher. And and, and I respected that about him and, and, you know, the success of his teams, I thought, often stemmed from the simple things, covering all the details, being very fundamentally sound. You know, every player having a role that allowed him to contribute, put him in a position to succeed, but kept him out of positions to fail. Now you look back at the last four years and obviously uh, the, the the methods didn't uh, produce the same results. And and I think obviously the, the quarterback looms over all of it, losing Tom Brady uh, to free agency. But that doesn't change for me what I respected about Bill as a coach and, and the things that I remember most about watching him on a day-to-day -day basis during those training camps, when we, the only time we really could go out and watch practice regularly. Wow, that's some great insight and definitely some great stories. You know, those are really going to stick forever. And it's we'll see where he goes. I mean, for me, I think what's going to stick forever is just like you touched upon it, the attention to detail, um, you know, that we saw how – they ran the Malcolm Butler play in practice in the Super Bowl. I know Ernie Adams had a lot to do with that as well, but I saw on a podcast Edelman said that they would have him wear the same colored gloves as the other team so that the refs couldn't tell if there was holding or not. Just stuff that really no one thinks about but him. And, you know, we see how he knew every bit of the rule book, like in that Baltimore game, and just it's incredible looking back on it. So just want to talk about uh, the new era with Gerard Mayo. Pretty interesting how it seemed like there was some uncertainty in the air with 
uh, Vrabel getting fired in Tennessee and what happened earlier in the year. But, you know, Kraft was a man of his word, and it seems like he picked the right guy out, Gerard Mayo. We'll see what happens next season. But just wondering what your thoughts were on the whole hiring process and just uh, where we go from here. Yeah, you know, George, one thing I would add to about Bill that uh, I think anybody who's covered the team on a regular basis would say is that the Fridays when he would give history lessons in his press conferences, when he was more relaxed, you, know, you, you don't forget those. It was pretty amazing to walk in there sometimes and listen to Bill spend 10 minutes talking about special teams plays or historical figures like Paul Brown uh, in, in, you know, some of the greats in the game, Jim Brown, Lawrence Taylor, uh, you name it. So learning about football and football history uh, from Belichick, that was, that, that, that's something I would never take for granted. And uh, we'll always appreciate. And regarding Gerard, you know, I, I felt strongly that Gerard Mayo was going to be the guy. Uh, even before that release last year, I, I remember in, in some conversations with people the last couple of seasons, I just felt like Robert Kraft had mentored him when he was a young player. The, the business connections he had, uh, the person that Gerard is off the field and his intelligence and his ability to meet people where they are, including people like Robert Kraft and Jonathan Kraft, these very, very smart businessmen who travel and work in circles of, of, of like-minded individuals. And knowing what I had learned about Mayo and some of his out-of-box thinking and you know the things that he was doing off the field in investments and climbing the corporate ladder, but also just, again, that, that relationship that he had with ownership from a very young age that, that I had, had heard about, read about, and even seen on uh, on, uh, all access, uh, some, some features that were done on him through the years. You know, it gave me a sense, you know, this is somebody that I, I bet that they can connect with him the way that they talked about when Robert Kraft tells you that when Bill Belichick was an assistant to Bill Parcells, you know, they could communicate about the salary cap, player value versus player cost. And Belichick's understanding of things that transcended football, you know, really formed the basis of their relationship that led Kraft ultimately to bring him back as the head coach of the Patriots. Uh, so I thought that was there, but also Gerard's personality, the humor, uh, the ability, again, like I said, to connect with people wherever they are, very likable. I think he's very authentic from my experiences and, uh, you know, someone that was very popular with the players. Not a lot of technically coaching experience, but a signal caller had to make the checks to the line of scrimmage from the inside linebacker position. I think somebody who's really smart, and, and can speed up that learning curve. But there is a huge task in front of him. I mean, the challenges are enormous for this team, and then it begins, obviously, with assembling the coaching staff. Definitely, you know, and you make a lot of good points. I think it's a great combination for him just in terms of what he brings to the table, just the, the fact that he's been here, the player respect that he already has, a very successful player. I mean, I remember watching him and just the all-pro achievements and – you know, helping lead defenses to get to the Super Bowl. And I do like how, you know, the business background and, you know, does I think he's going to be a guy who is analytical, but not someone like, you know, Brandon Staley, who just, you know, only thinks about numbers. I think I don't think you can get a good a good enough balance that you can, you're getting out of Gerard Mayo. And it, I think it was the right choice. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for doing this. We'll stay in touch and uh, hopefully we have a great free agency and draft and right back in the in the mix. Look forward to it, George, and uh, thanks for having me. And it's, yeah, absolutely. The draft coming up before we know it, free agency. So there's a lot that still will unfold in the next few few weeks to get there with the coaches and uh, what they do with the offense in particular. But it's a very exciting time. For sure. 
Thanks again.